Hey everyone, Josh and Ryan here, and welcome back to the 2% Podcast. Research shows if you put 100 random people in a room, somewhere amongst them, there'll be just two truly incredible, inspirational people who are living their lives to the fullest. In this podcast, we bring those exact people to you, week in, week out. 2% of a day is just half an hour, so thank you for taking 2% of your day to be educated and inspired by joining us on our journey as we learn the secrets, routines and dreams of the Two Percenters. Welcome back to the Two Percent Podcast. Uh, today we're joined by Elizabeth Bird. Liz, thanks for joining us. Hi. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, would you mind giving us a quick introduction for our listeners of, of who you are and, and what you're currently doing at the moment? Of course. Hi, I, so I am Elizabeth Bird, and I'm the managing partner of a boutique wealth management business based in Cheshire called Chronos Wealth Management. My background is um, 17 years in the private banking industry. Um, I completed a graduate programme with Coots Bank in London um, and became a private banker um, in their Canary Wharf office um, at quite a young age, at around 22 years old, um, where I was dealing with um, um, all the very successful city traders, hedge fund managers, investment bankers, yeah. uh, which was a fantastic opportunity to just get stuck in at the hardest level um, of uh, dealing with very sophisticated individuals. Um, I then decided to move back to um, my hometown of Manchester um, with Coots and about a year later I moved to UBS Wealth Management um, which was a relatively new um, business in uh, London and just starting in Manchester at that time um, and I was a banker there and, and became a director of that business um, helping them really start their business in Manchester um, and grow that business. After that, I decided to um, go and work with Barclays Wealth um, for around four years as well, where I used to look after a lot of business owners um, and helping them, um, maybe when they've sold their business, how to manage their, their money going forward. Um, and after 15 years, I decided that it was time to, to actually do this for myself instead of being employed. Um, and took the leap to um, set up my own wealth management business at that stage. Great, okay. So how does um, Kronos sort of differ from the organisations that you worked with in the past? What's their niche, really? Yeah, so for me, setting up my own business, the focus was always to create a business that I would be really proud of and where I could treat clients the way that I would want to be treated as a client. And I think within a very big organization like the private banks, um, it often felt like as a, as a banker and maybe sometimes as a client that you were just a number and you were just a commodity and you kind of had to accept how things were. Whereas having your own business, you can control um, one, the kind of clients that you want to work with and two, how, how you actually look after them. Mm. Okay, great. And so we were just chatting actually before you came online. And um, for those that perhaps don't know, what is the difference between things, um, like how do you define wealth management and the difference between something like investment banking and that sort of thing? Yeah, so the wealth management is really, um, it is what it says on the tin in that it is managing your wealth. It's not just looking at the investments, but it's looking at all the other factors. So for me, the big 
um, the most important part of my job now is tax planning. Um, in the fact that as an investment manager, you're just looking at the return you get on the investments. Whereas if tax for that personal individual is eating away at that return, your actual net return is much lower. So for me, a lot of what we're doing is trying to create them a net return and often a very tax efficient net cash flow in their hands. Okay. So, so that's, that's very important. But a lot of the other work that I do um, is I would really call myself a financial coach. Mm -hmm. So, and we'll probably maybe touch on this um, a bit further down the podcast, but nowadays I think we're all thinking more about what does money mean to us and what yeah. does it mean to our future. And so I try to coach people and help people think about what they want from their wealth and what they want their family to have from that wealth longer term. Mm. And I guess like the obvious answer to that is or in my mind anyway it's like you want it to grow you want it to, you know maximize your wealth but is that are you saying sort of that's not always the answer in terms of um maximizing wealth so yeah everybody wants to grow their wealth but actually when you get to a certain level of wealth perhaps you've been growing your wealth by building a fantastic business and you sell that out you've you've grown your wealth but at that point and the main worry is as well as growing it because you're already financially free is protecting it mm. so we do a lot of work with clients thinking about how they protect their wealth and that might be um factors that may happen to them or their children or their grandchildren which may be things like death divorce etc so it's not just about getting richer it's about how do you actually use your money in the right way as well the other thing i think a lot of people want to do with their money is give back so it's about how do you make that work for you personally? And that might be giving that back, giving that back to help other people. Okay. So Liz, what are your um, key highlights from your 15 year corporate career? Was it, did you say, before you then took that leap? Like what was it during that time that led you to um, really take that decision you spoke about the way that you interact with clients but yeah. you know it's not something that a lot of people then actually do a lot of people talk about going out on their own but not Absolutely. everyone does yeah so i think the great thing about working for a corporate um initially rather than necessarily just going out straight on your own and be self-employed is you've got some security so you've got the security of learning your trade and learning you know how to do that job whilst being able to make mistakes um, whilst being able to have that comfort of the monthly salary. Um, and even if you can learn how to do something technically, so you might be able to learn all the tax rules and learn all the technical parts of actually investments and managing money, you actually need to practice it because the, the big uh, part of our job that I think we need to learn is how to deal with people and the psychology of how people deal with their wealth as well and the only way you can learn that is by um, experience so it's only by working with different kinds of clients watching how their thought processes happen and change and, and seeing the results and the decisions they make and also maybe the advice you give over time as well so I think having a certain amount of time in that kind of space where you can practice what you do before that making that leap um, out to do it on your own is very very valuable 
Yeah. And I suppose it's about risk as well, isn't it, in terms of that security? So it's quite a risky thing to go and be employed by yourself to kind of take that leap. Um, yeah. but you spoke about mistakes there as well. What mistakes were there that you made or the companies you worked for made that yeah. perhaps led to led to you making that decision? So I think um, it's a really interesting uh, question that um, I have managed many, many tens, hundreds of millions um, under management of investments. Um, and I was managing um, significant portfolios during um, 2008, then on to 2009, 2010, yeah. when we obviously saw such huge um, volatility in markets. Um, we saw investments that we'd made basically close so clients couldn't get their money out. Um, we saw um, cash solutions, which we had marketed as cash solutions, effectively become tied up for three years. So in that regard, in a way, you could call it a mistake, but it was things happened that we had we couldn't necessarily foresee. Um, and in a way, it, it was great at that time to be protected by a large organisation yeah. um, who effectively would have done the due diligence on, on those investments, on those solutions, um, rather than necessarily being you know, out on your own and having to deal with that, if that makes sense. So, um, you know, I think there are mistakes made because you don't always know, um, you can't always foresee your future, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. so that was a, that was a hugely um, interesting time um, to be invested um, in markets and also gave me a huge amount of experience to talk then in the future about what might happen and, and to, to explain to clients about risk management because I'd gone through that with at that time with clients. I really like the point you made as well about like you're not just managing money you're managing relationships because yeah. I think there's a, a stereotype what well, I certainly see a stereotype in terms of the numbers people aren't necessarily the best sort of people people um, yeah. whereas you're sort of saying in order to really excel in the area that you've you've gone into you need to really have a knack for both the people and the numbers. Yeah that's so true so um, I come from a mathematical background I read maths at university um, I'm technical. Uh, I know all the jargon. We're taught all the jargon when you do all your, your exams. It's very, very technical. You're provided within the banks, you know, with so much technical information, um, so much market commentary, so much economic commentary that you're supposed to obviously be using to discuss with clients. But I think as you become more experienced in this job, you realise that half of that is actually almost putting the client off because what you think and how you're explaining it to them doesn't make any sense in their world because that is not their area of expertise. When I first went into this um, career, I thought because someone was wealthy and because someone had done very well in business that they would understand what I was saying. Yeah. yeah. Actually, this is not their field of expertise. So the thing I've learned is how to effectively utilize the information that I take in but put it to the client in a way that they can understand mm. um, and you know using different analogies and even for somebody who is perhaps in professional services you know using analogies that they can personally relate to and understand 
helps them kind of plan and understand what they want to do themselves. Yeah, that's, that's interesting about that. Not everyone that's sort of at the top of a business is actually that screwed onto the numbers. Like from your experience, how, so I know it's quite a general question, but what sort of percentage of people who are like really wealthy individuals, but they don't actually have that much idea of their finances and the technicalities of it? I would say um, a very high percentage. Really? Yeah. If you're running a, a really successful business, your focus, and I think your focus is on that business. And probably, you know, if, if your business is earning good money, you're probably taking a nice salary, dividends, etc. out. You're not focusing. You've got enough money in your pocket. You know, you've got a mon enough money coming into the bank account each month. And in their head, they're going to sell their business and that's going to make them financially free. So actually managing their personal finances is probably right at the that time, probably really far down on the list of priorities mm. because they're just kind of having their gut that they're going to be okay. It's often when they sell the business, they then panic because they think, I better do something with this money now because I no longer have this business. And therefore, oh my gosh, I better make sure this works for me. But what I often find is they've spent 15 years running their business and not necessarily educating themselves on their personal finances. So at that point, they actually might be, we often have to embark on a bit of a financial educational process mm. because they haven't really planned out or looked at tax planning, investment planning, um, and all those things before. So a lot of the time, you know, we spend a bit of time educating our clients and in a really positive way on what their options are and what mm. good could look like and, and what they actually want their money to do for them. Okay. And taking that into something you said earlier, so you spoke about the variance in people's psychology and how they relate to their wealth. So for your client base, is that um mainly as you said kind of business owners like what what's the kind of difference or different relationships that that yeah. you see that people have with their wealth so i think um there's two things there's firstly there's people who have been brought up with wealth and people who haven't been brought up with wealth so that mm. that really plays on how they feel about it and then there's people who've made the money themselves and people who've met perhaps got it through um, inheritance, divorce, that kind of thing. And so I can't categorically say which one would be a risk taker and which one wouldn't. It's all about their view of risk. And again, it comes back to sometimes educating people. So some business owners who may be incredibly uh, risk takers in their business because it's something they understand, when they start their business, may really struggle to take any risk with the cash that they've accumulated from that business sale because they're often terrified of losing it in an environment that they don't understand. But if I ask, but, but actually inherently before they were a, a risk taker. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes it's about educating people of what your head and your heart are saying as well. So, so we, often it's a case of showing somebody why they have to take risk and the potential risk of not doing anything with their money as well. Yeah, so kind of explaining the different contexts. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's something you don't really think about um, in terms of business owners being people who 
um, a, a kind of very risk um, risk takers, they're very entrepreneurial. Yes. Um, but then actually in some contexts, such as financial management, because they might not have that education or expertise, yeah. kind of you can be a, a different personality and have a completely different attitude. Mm. I guess it's something that you don't really think about. Yeah. yeah. And um, people often, I was going to say, people often want to invest in things they understand. So, you know, in the UK, property is, is, is um, you know, probably the, the investment of choice for most yeah. people because it's something people understand. So people say to me, well, you can't lose money on property but I can lose money if I go into the stock market. Mm. So it's about, obviously you can lose money on all kinds of different investments. <laughs> yeah. So it's all about explaining the potential risks with those investments. Yeah. I have a question around when, when people typically come to you, like what stage, because by the nature of what you do, being like a wealth management or a financial coach, those individuals with high net worth potentially might think, well, I don't, I don't need to manage my wealth. Like, I'm doing fine. I've already got, you know, X amount of money in the bank. Whereas potentially those ones that are really struggling for finance can't afford a, a wealth manager. So yeah. when do your clients mm. typically sort of come to you? Um, I do find I get a lot of introductions from people who are selling their businesses. Um, because I think people at that stage are conscious they've got to do something with their money. Mm. Um, but what I always say to obviously people who are referring those kind of clients to me is how important it is that we meet people on the stage of their journey um, and as they are coming up to sell their business because there's probably a lot of planning they could have done beforehand. And also, going back to what I said about educating themselves financially, a lot of the, I do a lot of work now with people who have businesses about planning their financial future. So we plan out what good looks like for them and what they want when they do sell their business. And it might be for some people that they can sell their business sooner. It might be that they don't want to sell their business, but they just want to take some money out of it. It might be that, um, you know, that they, they want to do some planning earlier. They do planning earlier. So they're already building these nest eggs, which means that when they do sell their business, um, they have different streams of income. So we're always kind of looking to speak to people on all kinds of stages of the journey. Yeah. Um, within our business, we are speaking to a lot of uh, younger um, entrepreneurs um, with very fast growing businesses, maybe in the technology space, um, and really trying to encourage them to educate themselves on a personal finance basis a lot earlier. Because I think predominantly them, they would never come to a wealth manager at this stage. But it's really, really important that they, they just come on the journey with us and start to learn about what they should be doing at an early age. Mm. So really, we're doing quite a lot at the moment about trying to educate younger, the younger high earning professionals, the younger entrepreneurs, what they should do earlier on. Because... Once you understand the compounding of wealth over time, you understand why putting money away and doing the right planning at an earlier age will create you a much greater financial future. Yeah. So those engagements with clients, are they typically sort of projects that have a sort of life 
time on them where you say I'm going to get you to sell your business or we'll create a plan and then it's over yeah. do you typically sort of have long-term relationships with clients that that's correct so my business is all about long-term relationships with the client with their children hopefully their grandchildren for the longer term you know we will put plans in place that may last 100 years right. for those clients mm. so um absolutely if i meet somebody anybody wherever stage they're on their journey you know we could be planning that journey out for the next 10 or 20 years and the key is things change on that process so we would we would amend the plan but mm. we all need a goal of where we're going otherwise we're just blindly working away yeah into the future yeah. and we have no idea what we're even doing this for so a lot of the time i mean my personal plan is about having the right work-life balance and the right lifestyle along the way but also knowing that when i want to retire that my plan will deliver the retirement that i want and you can plan you know i'm only 38 years old i'm certainly not going to be retiring for a while especially because i love what i do so my retirement plan maybe in 30 years time but i'm planning now for it because the more i do now the better my plan now the better my results yeah yeah it's something that you hear a lot you know in the kind of ft kind of news that um young professionals or just everyone in general i guess needs to be planning like right now like go and put some yeah. savings away right now like as, as soon as possible for for retirement and for um, you know, to have a kind of buffer amount that if anything goes wrong, if we have a downturn, that you've got an amount there. Um, but my question would be, how can you kind of on an individual level, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit more later, um, kind of approach that? Like, it's such a daunting question um, in terms of like planning for your whole financial future. Like, what's the starting point? Yeah. Do you know what? I started at university. So, mm. um from from university i was planning my financial future which sounds ridiculous when i say it now but when i look back i was so in my mind um i i was always going to buy a property young so i bought my first property probably the year after i left university um i was saving um through university and i know that's probably it's not always possible um, because the university is so expensive but it's all about managing your cash flow so for me, I was saving certain amounts into high interest accounts, into investments, because I had a goal that I needed a certain amount of money at some point in the next few years in order to be able to get my first deposit to get me on the property ladder. Mm -hmm. You know, so my first deposit came from, um, uh, I think I'd been given some shares as a child, I'd never sold them. I'd been investing, probably birthday money. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. My parents taught me to save and invest at a young age. So, but I look back, the first deposit for my house came from probably savings from the age of seven years old. Um, I'm doing the same for my children now. They know that. So they they might have excess birthday money and they laugh because they say, mommy's put it in my ISA. <laughs> but I know that, you know, they're not really going to miss that 50, set, 50 pound set of Lego. Um, so everything goes, I save a certain amount for them each year in the fact that, and they know this, um, because I know that they are going to need that deposit when they come, when they finish university, when they want to buy their first property. Um, 
so for me it was about finding that first 25,000 or whatever um, and then using debt in order in the right way so um, and this might this is it's quite I think it's quite important about how you use debt in the right way so mm. you know actually if you want to use credit cards to buy your first property and, and renovate it which is absolutely what I did and people may turn their you know turn their head at that but you know, I used it as an, for an investment vehicle, which was to renovate my first property and sell it on, um, you know, for more money. So I think you can start really early. You can start by putting away money really early. And if you start to look at the compounding over 40, 50 years, or you just know that that deposit is going to give you the first 5% in order to then borrow 95% on which you can then gear up and, and buy an investment property, it's really powerful any small amount that you save. Um, mm -hmm. We do quite a lot of investing for people, for their grandchildren, for example. So we would have been, you know, I'm sure you will have heard this analogy. Um, you know, if, if you're saving the minimum amount, uh, uh, you know, just a small amount into your children's pensions from zero to 18. You know, if you were doing £3,600 a year um, into their pensions from zero to 18, that child will never need to put any more in their pension. They will be a pension millionaire. Mm. And that, okay, that you don't have to do that on such a big scale, but you know, for someone who is who can save in their twenties, it's incredibly powerful the power of compounding on what they would would get at retirement for that. I, I also see a lot of advice around sort of um, sort of again, like like you're saying, the little things make a difference. So in terms yeah. of um, you know, you, do you need that cough, that second coffee of the day yeah. from Starbucks mm, or whatever? That's classic. Yeah, that's like an example classic, that's yeah. always used. Um, do you do you sort of buy into that? Are you sort of believer in every little lifestyle choice adds up over time in terms of the savings? Um, I mean, I, I probably I'm not quite that bad where I think, well, I'm not going to buy a new dress or I'm not going to buy a coffee. Yeah. But I, again, looking at my upbringing, I was always brought up and. Um, how do you buy something quality for less money? And I do that in everything in my life. So whether it's, if I'm going to go and buy a new design a dress, I would not walk, I, I laugh at this because I used to live near Harrods, I wouldn't walk by, go into Harrods and buy it at full price. I would go to a designer outlet and get a great dress for, you know, 70% off. And I do that in everything in my life. Yeah. So, you know, if I'm going to refurbish the bathroom in my house, I will scour the internet and buy the best the quality things for the least amount of money. So I think it for me, it's not really about saving the coffee. It's more thinking big picture. And mm -hmm. it's about having a mindset of spend your money for in a quality way. Yeah. Uh, to create the lifestyle that you want, but for less. Yeah, I think I resonate with that more, to be honest, because I think when I see this sort of advice, like you should be saving at every aspect of your life, like it gets mm -hmm. to a point where you maybe sacrifice your own well-being and your just general living. Exactly. Um, like if you're consciously thinking about yeah. that all the time where you can save the next penny. Yeah. Whereas if you sort of have it as a lifestyle choice, as I'm going to invest my money wisely and, and like you yeah. say, buy, buy from a designer outlet rather than, you know, Harrods yeah. um, full price, then that sort of makes sense more to me. Yeah, so it's rather than just saving as well, it's thinking the big picture of what is your money going to do for you in the longer term. So if you're going to work and you're earning £35,000 a year, you know, I guess it's thinking, how am I going to either get 
to get a bigger salary over time? How am I going to make even those earnings work for my personal wealth over the longer term? So for me, having a job in those early days gave me the opportunity to have to be able to go and get a mortgage. So, you know, in our in our in our business, we we get mortgages for people because that's part of managing their wealth is managing their debt. And um, we were just chatting about this in the office earlier. You know, we're not taught at school about how to get a mortgage. We're not taught about no. how to manage our money um, when we first become employed. And, you know, so many people go to get a mortgage and they can't get their mortgage because they've just taken finance on an expensive car. So, you know, do they buy the, I don't know, do they buy the Range Rover or do they buy the Polo? Um, that buying that Range Rover, even though they might be able to afford it out of their income, may now completely affect the affordability on their mortgage. And therefore, they may not be able to buy that investment property that they wanted to buy. So maybe they should have got their mortgage, you know, bought that investment property, got it done up, for example, and then when they made the money, go and then buy the Range Rover, for example. So it's all a bit about timing as well and planning what's more important to you. You know, is it the car now or is it? you know, getting that property and creating that new investment or putting your money in your ISA and getting your money in your pension. So it's always thinking the bigger picture with all these things. Yeah. So why do you think it is that we don't learn those skills? Like you're exactly right. Like Josh and I, you know, we're 21 now, kind of gone through education, now yeah. in the kind of top end of universities, yeah. about to enter the workplace. And you're exactly right. Like I could just about get by in terms of telling you what a credit score is i can tell you what my overdraft is and how that works yes. but other than that I, yeah, like, no, the kind of true. the basic things around isas like the one for us at the moment is the kind of help to buy isa yeah like, the amount of research that i've had to do of to mm. and even then i'm still confused like yeah. of, we don't get that education like why do you think it is because it's so so important and then i think that's it as soon as you hit the workplace you've got a salary coming in it's that sort of oh what do i do with it yeah exactly i mean i just think it's a massive issue with um the educational system mm. um that we we aren't taught that so i mean i don't know i certainly wasn't taught it at school um i've got a son who's just gone into senior school um and he has life skill lessons um, we call it life skills or social skills, and he's being taught how to tow, um, how to tow a tie a bow tie, put <laughs> on a party. Um, but he's not learning, you know, what is an interest rate and what mm. is a mortgage and what is an ISA. So that has to come from me at home. So I've just taught him about interest. Um, he's actually going into school and lending, lending his pocket money out and charging. <laughs> the <laughs> <of> <laughs> I love it. So you know, because the ch yeah. children out there don't understand, you know, they don't understand interest rates, and we're not taught it at all. And I think there's a massive gap in the educational system there that needs to be be filled. So a lot of the time, it's having to come from home, from mums and dads. And the reality is, society is pretty bad at managing their own money. And mm. Most people put their head in the sand. Um, about it as well. Um, I think the other problem is, as as the British, we're really um, it's it's not our culture to talk about wealth, and it's not no, our it's culture to talk topic, about money. Really? Mm. Yeah, so we don't, you know, 
a lot of parents don't talk to their children about how much they earn um, because we say you don't talk about how wealthy you are, you don't talk about how much you earn, you don't talk about it within society. So I think maybe then people aren't talking to their children about it as well. Um, whereas I'm quite as I'm quite open with my children about finances because actually they need to learn it. But most parents probably aren't. So there's a gap in the uh, financial education system. And I think there's a society, there's a gap as well about talking about money. Mm. Yeah, and I, I suppose another point on, on that is that actually the commercial banking sector, I know, do a lot around that. I, I know Lloyd's did a good campaign called the M Word uh, advertising campaign showing their services. Barclays, I know, do their yeah. life skills uh, campaign, which I'm sure you you're familiar with from your time there. So that there are services out there that are increasingly more uh, kind of available. But yeah, I definitely think that there could be more done kind of in schools. Um, mm. And yeah, it's interesting that it's a kind of taboo topic that we all kind yes. of acknowledge as a taboo topic, but yeah, yeah. at the same time, aren't quite getting into. Mm. Yeah, I think I think there's a massive gap in the market. I think we're going to see a change there. I think there'll be a lot more on online learning in this space. Mm. I think people are um, realizing that, you know, then there isn't just, it's just a technical, there's, there's a lot of technical information, but people can't put that technical information together to plan things, if that makes yeah. sense. So you might be able to go to Barclays and find out what a help to buy ISA is, but then you're not really sure, as you said, you technically might know about it, but you can't really work out if it's actually going to make any difference in your personal circumstances or not. And I think there's probably going to be an opportunity for more kind of online learning in that space because it's not really being taught anywhere in particular at the moment. Well, that's it for another episode of the 2% podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed recording. If you or someone you know has a story to tell, we'd love to hear from you. So please get in touch. And if you have a question you want answering, send it in to us using Anchor Voice Messages and you can feature in a future episode. All the links are in the description. Stay motivated, follow your dreams and as always, do it with a smile.